Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Terry. Thank you for having me again. So this is the last episode that we're having for 2020. What a year it's been, hasn't it? Oh, it's been so crazy. So many things have happened. I, I hope that 2021 will bring something new and different and positive. I hope so too. I, I think we're we're all exhausted with being uh, constantly given lessons every day about consciousness, and we already have those opportunities, you and I, through the work that we do. But I think everybody else who's actually not working directly in advocacy or advocate ad- activism has had lots of opportunities as well to learn about systemic oppression and the harms of patriarchy. So hopefully these lessons will be able to carry through to actual action, deliberate action for positive change. Absolutely. And like you said uh, in previous episodes, there are a lot of things that are now more apparent and hopefully it'll bring a lot of awareness to people who may not have looked at these issues before. I think in a lot of ways, we may see some positive things come out of this year. I hope so. So let's jump right in. We didn't have a chance to talk about the individual survivor stories from episodes 122 to 128, as we normally Mm -hmm. would have, but most of those survivors were actually part of our Domestic Violence Awareness Month community conversations. Um, So Mm -hmm. we can talk about that. So this past October, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we were able to launch for the first time a series of community conversations that were available to anyone, any place all around the world to join, starting from episodes 130 to 134, including conversations on building systemic change, domestic abuse and police violence, domestic abuse and communities of color, domestic abuse and child abuse, and finally in episode 134, domestic abuse and the church. So within these conversations, what we wanted to do is really to give a picture uh, holistically of, number one, what is the definition of domestic violence, or in this case, course of control that we use to understand the gendered power dynamics that are at play here, and what are the different systems in which these dynamics can play out. And hopefully it provided an opportunity for listeners and for the participants of those community conversations to really understand and intuitively just get it. Um, So I would love to hear just overall, what was your impression from the five community conversations that we had? Overall, I felt like each one had a different perspective on uh, and something else to bring to the table. For example, Elle, as a filmmaker, talking about the media and its effect on on DV. You had victims of uh, domestic violence through the police system. You brought in several uh, guests who were protective mothers uh, navigating the system. And so I I, I thought it was very informative and very, very comprehensive. Building Systems Change, episode 130, and that community conversation, we had a series of guests who tried to provide a holistic picture. First, number one of the definition of domestic violence as course of control as a gendered liberty crime. And then looking at it from the primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention model perspective that Jess Hill talks about in her book, See What You Made Me Do. And so those different perspectives are about how do we prevent abuse through interventions and culture in the media, like you were talking about with Elle and the work that she does. And then the secondary model is about how do we provide direct services to the people who are being harmed, so survivors, giving Mm -hmm. counseling and interventions, legal assistance, housing assistance, et cetera, using the criminal justice system as a tool to provide accountability for the perpetrator. And then the tertiary prevention perspective is how do we reduce 
crime and recidivism right. and dealing with perpetrator and, and how do we strengthen communities and individual survivors and their families. So that I think is not something that we are doing in a coordinated way in this country. Absolutely. The fact that, you know, it's not even discussed in that way. And in order Mm -hmm. to be able to have that perspective, you need to have coordination between the public health sector, the criminal justice system, you know, which includes, of course, law enforcement, probation, and family court also has its own aspects, you know, that contribute to criminal justice in terms of orders of protection. And of course, you need the also the intersection of, you know, housing and, and education, uh, both for the survivor and the, chi- and the children and employment, because you can't help move someone to a position of empowerment if they don't have the economic means to leave an abusive relationship, or if a relationship is the only means that they have to actually have economic security. So that actually may be something they seek, let alone, you know, try to avoid. Right. It it would bring up a whole list of other issues because in general, women are in general more economically disadvantaged than men are. So in in, in most of these relationships, uh, a lot of these men use financial, the the fact that they're financially able to control the the money in the relationship that uh, it's also very difficult for a woman to, to be able to go out on her own. And so I think, you know, that's something that I wish we have to start at, in the grassroots because from the people who are working in the system, uh, we talked about you know the nonprofit or the DV industrial complex. They're invested in many ways in keeping the system afloat for their own livelihoods. And you and I, we've talked about also, or we've touched upon also the fact that the shelter system is flawed. Of course. People are invested who work in the shelter system and in increasing shelters but the model itself, it's the only crime, domestic abuse is the only crime where the victim needs to be the per- person who is on the run, essentially, and the perpetrator gets to stay. So why can't right. the victim stay in the home and have the means economically, you know, there could be housing support, etc., cetera, uh, and put the perpetrator in jail and somewhere else, displace the perpetrator, not the victim. Right. So punish the perpetrator, not the victim. And that's uh, one of the things that Australia seems to be doing better in many cases. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you were able to bring in that perspective from a whole bunch of uh, other locations where we can understand and sort of be able to use other models to hopefully address the system over here in the United States, which, as we see, it's flawed in so many ways. Yeah. And on the topic of housing, we already have a paradigm here called Housing First that we discussed in that episode. And the idea behind Housing First is that when you provide someone the means to have a roof over their head, if they have substance abuse and addiction issues, if they have employment challenges, if they have they need education, if they're fleeing an abusive relationship, if they're economically insecure, all mm-hmm. of those things will come into play later after their housing is addressed and they can't deal with everything at once. And so once you put a roof over someone's head, it creates lots of different positive outcomes, including the ability to envision a future. You know, they're not living in crisis uh, mode and trauma mode, and there's a sense of peace and relief where they can just learn. So how could you how could you be in school when you're not when you're worried about where you can sleep? Or how can you keep a job? Or how can you be a good parent to a child when you're fleeing a bad relationship, an abusive relationship, when all of these things require really housing first, right? And and housing first doesn't seem to apply for whatever reason. Nobody's directly using that as a means to address domestic abuse, which really puzzles me because like I said, why not housing first instead of shelter system? Why is housing first okay with other people who are homeless or um, housing insecure? I think in general, it's because of the way, especially people here in the United States think it's, 
it they look at homelessness and that's why I was we're talking about housing I think a lot of people think automatically homeless homelessness issues and they think well the person should be able to get out on their own and do it and, and be able to work for themselves and if they're homeless it's because they're lazy like I think that's that's the general idea that a lot of people especially from like you know republicans i would say a lot of them do feel that way and like you said when a person doesn't have a home how are they going to find a job every job that i've been employed for they've always asked for my address and that has to be stable because they'll bring especially like the first check will go to your household like stability is something that's very important also if you don't have a home where are you going to take a shower where are you going to find clothing that's going to be clean and maintain it it's it's very difficult to find a job because there's so many things attached to it that require that that would really be helpful if you had a stable home stable living condition so uh also location so it it's it, it's it's one of those big issues that i think because a lot of people have lost their jobs recently it it may have been it may become an even bigger issue overall but especially in domestic violence cases yeah so hopefully there the people who are working in the domestic violence community can realize that you know if other people who have housing insecurity should have housing rather than shelters then so should domestic violence victims and there should not be this double standard where domestic violence victims are placed in shelters instead of homes Absolutely because not only are they lacking housing housing but they're also uh insecure in terms of their safety. Was there anything that you learned from episode 130 in terms of building systems change that was particularly insightful and you're more you're interested in us as a society exploring further? Absolutely even from from L when she was she as a filmmaker one of the things that she mentioned was how media has an effect on our perception of domestic violence and how I feel like we are informed by the media that we consume and because of that we may be ignorant to a lot of things like coercive control so I'm glad that she's bringing that into the conversation through her use of media of uh, about a week ago I was speaking to a friend who told me that uh she was watching a show and that the show had a, a person that was uh it was a young lady that was upset about something and she kept on bothering her boyfriend and at one point she she went to attack her boyfriend and the boyfriend he didn't display any any pattern or anything he just like lashed out and and pushed her back and she filed charges for of, of domestic violence and she thought hey that's that's strange like you know that one particular case of domestic violence which it is right because he did attack her but it did not fit into what I would fit what I would call a course of control it, it it wasn't an example of systemic abuse in my opinion so like because people see that and of course it's a television show which is built there specifically for entertainment it builds up this narrative that this woman is crazy and some women are crazy and and it's messed up that this man went to to jail for for just one little incident and people aren't having the conversation of well this may may have been one of the things that Jess Hill m- mentioned was uh, reactive abuse where it's or, or just just maybe one one sort of issue that that needs to be addressed and while it is still dangerous it's not the same thing as a, a systemic coercive control um i i i would equate it to like for example uh my niece uh recently is is hitting hitting my hit her mom and it's not because it the child is being abusive the child can't really uh use language effectively so out of frustration the child hits the mother but it's not but 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 it, there's a reason right there there's there's always a it's it's something that could be addressed by teaching and i think that in those cases like people don't know the difference between coercive control and just a reactive Yeah, so you're what you're saying is is that's that's a great example with your niece. We've also talked about this in the past. Evan Stark says that violence in it of itself is not necessarily bad. Right. It's whether it's how the violence is used because someone can, you know, you can have a bar fight where two men for example are hitting each other. Right. And having a brawl in that case it's just a brawl and right. and so the violence is a tool in coercive control as a way to subordinate another person and usually uh-huh. as 
part of a pattern of intimidating and terrorizing another person into submission in terms of acquiescing to perpetrator's request or, you know, whatever other kinds of behaviors that the victim is being self-policed into. So the example of a child is just, we all have individual needs. And a child at that age, your niece is two right now? She's two. Yeah. She doesn't have the, the vocabulary or the emotional development yet psychological mm-hmm. development to articulate her needs in a way right. that can be addressed, you know, without her having to, I guess, you know, get her mother's resort attention. To, yeah, resort right. to hitting her mom, uh, which, by the way, I'm sure is not for a two-year-old, you know, is not going to cause any harm for, to your sister. And so in that case, you know, you have to look at the power dynamics, right? And and so when you have, let's just say, you know, back to Jess, when you have a woman who's, quote unquote, the perpetrator, and by the way, what show was that? Yeah, Teen Mom. Okay, so so that's a reality show. Yeah, it's a reality show, which, like, again, that's what I was saying. It's a, it's a lot of, like, you know, TV shows portray a, a person a certain way. The whole reality show genre is about exaggerating, you know, um, exactly. and exploiting those kinds of tensions and conflicts for profit, mm-hmm. right? So that's when right. you have a, a, a woman, a teenager, first of all, you know, a teen by definition means they haven't, their brain hasn't fully developed. Correct. And for for boys, it's not until 25. I don't know what the age is for girls, but certainly they don't have the emotional maturity. Of course. In this society, one of the things we talked about in the community conversations is we don't have the mechanism and the infrastructure for teaching social and emotional skills and integrating that into Mm -hmm. our education system. Mm -hmm. So being able to self-regulate, which is a social and emotional skill, being able to name your emotions and what you need, articulate them. As a boy, right. for example, I need love. I need coll- connection. I need to be feel valued. Those right. things are not things that boys say. So when they turn to their peers, their male peers for bonding, and the, and those masculine environments, stereotypically hegemonic masculine in- environments, mm-hmm. this is what they're searching for. Right. Put pressure on them to behave in a conformist way in a dominant patriarchal. Uh, patriarchy says you have to be dominant and you have to use violence and force and have power over to have value and status. And they conform mm-hmm. to that, even though it may not feel right for them. Right. It's actually harmful to them, right? And so Absolutely. these are things that get exploited in a reality show. And so it goes against the grain to have a woman be the perpetrator because that's not the case. And so it get, you know gets more ratings and then they don't bother having the explanation or the debrief, which I think is very morally irresponsible for a show like that. Absolutely. That's, that was a separate conversation that I had with her about how, yeah, how, how basically the narrative is manipulated by the person who's creating the show, right? That's, it, it's there to entertain. So that's what the, the, the purpose of the show is, not to inform. So in a lot of that, there's a lot of misinformation that I feel is, is communicated to the audience. And so that's why I think the conversation that Elle is part of, it, it, it helps. It helps with uh, us understanding I have to address this since we're talking about the media before we go on to the other conversations. It's been a few days since I read the online responses to this show, but there's a new show uh, on Netflix called Bridgerton Mm -hmm. that came out that I watched during the past uh, week since Christmas. And it's executive produced by Shonda Rhimes, who well-known for Scandal and Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, and her and her really creative ways of um, telling stories and also being inclusive and promoting diverse casts and storylines. And so when, when her show came out, you know, lots of people flocked to her shows because of their creative genius, um, but also because, you know, they get to see themselves reflected. They get to see diverse people represented. It's set in Victorian England, and she features Queen Charlotte, who is allegedly biracial. So there's like a black first, the first black monarch of England. And, you know, lots of 
other people in high society, including the main character, the Duke of Hastings, who's also black or mixed race. And so that part was great, you know, that she was able to take some creative liberties to make Victorian England more diverse and more accepting than it would have mm-hmm. been, you know, than it was. But on the other hand, what happened was, uh, let me just, can I tell you the story? The briefly, sure. the story. So there's some, for people who haven't watched Bridgerton, I'm, we're going to have some spoilers here. So as I was watching, you know, when I watch a new show, I usually kind of Google to see what the reviews are like and, and see if I agree and, and see if there's anything uh, in terms of theme that I might, you know, want to look out for. The search came up with many articles recently about a particular scene. So this woman, I, the main, I'll just refer to them as a woman and the man. So there's a main character, a woman who's trying to, uh, from high society, who's trying to get married. And she uh, and this male character start a courtship. And the man comes from an abusive family. So basically, he doesn't, his father's greatest wish is that they carry on, you know, their family name. And so he despises his father and doesn't want to give his father his dying wish. And so he ch- chooses not to be a father out of spite for his, his own father who was abusive to him. So he doesn't tell this to the woman that he's courting. And at some point they get married and she thinks, you know, the whole time that he's sterile because of the wording and word choice that he uses, that he cannot mm-hmm. have a child. But it's what he's saying is he will not have a child. And she, she right. assumes that he's sterile. And so at some point, they're having sex. And throughout their relationship, when they, when they have intercourse, he uses the withdrawal method. And she, because she has no knowledge at all prior to this relationship of the female anatomy and male anatomy and and all of that, she doesn't know what that means and starts to suspect. So at some point, there's a scene where she's on top of him and normally he's on top of her and she she stays on top and he comes inside of her and mm-hmm. he uh, he says, wait. And then, then she realizes, oh my God, like there's, I guess, ejaculate. Yeah, he's not sterile. You know, yeah. he's not sterile. So that scene was written up by some folks as being a date rape scene, as being what? a scene of rape where the man is the victim and because oh there's God. no consent. And so, and then, then the whole bunch of people on Twitter um, with apparently black women on Twitter who were so upset that they were like, we're not going to watch this show because of the rape scene. And so I, 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 this is before I got to that scene, I was just starting the show. So I was like, great, now I have to watch the whole show to see if I agree. Right, <laughs> and right. by the time I got to the scene, I just thought, okay, so this is not rape. And, and I'll tell you why. Because rape isn't just about consent. There has to be some force or threat of force that is going to exploit the power imbalance in that relationship. And so if you analyze it from that lens, like, was is that person, if you don't submit, are you going to be physically harmed? Are you going to have emotional um, exploitation or some other form of harm? And this man was not harmed. And to me, it was kind of like he was the one for the power imbalance that started from before that scene is that he was lying to his wife about exactly. his um, fertility or sterility. And and he was using that in a way that missed that omission to manipulate, to manipulate her. It's like if you were in, if you had an affair and mm-hmm. your partner suspects that you had an affair and then takes your phone and then sees that you're having this text exchange, you know, with the person you're having an affair with and catches you in the lie. Yes, you did not give consent for your partner to look at your phone, but the harm is not that you are being harmed, it's that you were caught in harming exactly. that person. Exactly. Exactly. You were caught in the lies. Well, that's that's a really great comparison because I, it, it really explains why that's definitely not rape. I, it, it's, I mean, it, just because it's of a sexual nature doesn't mean that the power imbalance is there. Like, I, I agree with what you said. Yes. And so the lack of consent in a sexual nature, in a sexual act, it depends, I think, 
on the context. You you might say, well, maybe the person didn't feel harmed, you know. So, like people who are in cults, for example, right? They may not be aware that being they're being harmed, that their perception is you know being monopolized and they're being controlled, you know, through this right. other person, the cult leader. Um, and so, right. if they're not feeling harmed, then they're not being harmed, right? And but and that's, that's not I the mean, case. This, it's not the case right, here with this man in this you know in Bridgerton. He 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 wasn't harmed in this in the sense that you know he was physically emotionally psychologically or sexually violated right he was basically just caught in his own deception right and uh i mean according to the story though no i didn't i didn't see it she did not know that he was okay she was caught in lie. she caught him in the lie basically so it wasn't like she intentionally tried to make that happen correct you know, because of potentially because of his reaction too, she could see, oh, he didn't want me to do this because he doesn't want me to get pregnant. Got it. Which is a different thing when men use sexual coercion, mm-hmm. not using condoms or birth control so that a woman can get pregnant. That is a form of sexual coercion if the woman doesn't want to get pregnant because the, the outcome of her pregnancy might make her more beholden to the person that she's with, right? Like it might be a a, a form of a shackle. So that's not the case in this relationship. So I think that context gives more meaning to whether or not, you know, there was exploitation and violation, either the intent or the impact. And I think in in neither case was was that true. See, that idea of making sure that you're taking a look at everything in the context, not just in that one particular instance, is is key into Jess's book. I think one of the things that she mentioned was how it is that in these cases of coercion, course of control, that it's systemic, right? You should be able to take a look at, and that's what we should be doing here in the U.S., right? We should be taking a look at the entire relationship, interview and get to know the people to understand if this is a pattern. Because, again, sometimes it has nothing to do with violence, right, in in, in a lot of these cases. So if you're not taking a look at the whole situation, you wouldn't be able to determine whether it was coercive control or not, uh, as opposed to just punishing the individual instances of, of one person hitting another person. Right. Let's delve into some of the other episodes a little bit more. Sure. Police violence. We had... Uh, Angie Rivers was supposed to be a, a survivor participant in the community conversation, but she ended up getting sick. And so we had, you know, other people join. But Nanette was someone, in addition to Angie, whom we had individual conversations with earlier as survivor stories. So in the context of Angie and and her friends, by the way, who, whom we invited, and Nanette's contributions to understanding the role of police and sexism and misogyny in law enforcement. What did you learn from that conversation? A few things. One of the things, because this was very uh, heavy on, on the issues with the police, uh, where I, I believe even, uh, was it Effie? Yes, Abby Sarabi, Effie, who was uh-huh. a police officer, yeah, who was a police officer, and she was able to see, I guess, for, sort of from the inside of how corrupt the system can be. And so, I think it's very, it's very telling because even if a person who is one of them, like a police officer, it, is being mistreated, it, it's sort of a reflection of how they are treating the population. An interesting uh, statistic that I got from this episode was that 40% of police officers are abusers. So in one way or another, they have this sort of mentality, sort of demonstrate that maybe they're using their power and control, not just over the population and the people that they they have jurisdiction of. It's also in the in the home and in the family. So through my experience, or I've known police officers that have had this similar pattern. So that's not shocking. So both Heather and Effie joined the show to talk about their experience as female police officers, both from Canada, mm-hmm. who experience systemic sexism and misogyny and sexual harassment in the workplace. And I think Effie mentioned that people asked her when these things first started happening and she started speaking out about it. I mean, because it was so normalized, right? So they asked her, why did, how did you not know this when you joined? 
Yeah, when uh, when she went to the nurse, the nurse herself said she basically put the blame on her. It's like, why? How did you not know this? You should have known that this was like this. It's like, isn't it common sense? Like, it's been so normalized that then it's the victim who somehow put themselves in that position and maybe deserve it. I mean, that that's sort of the narrative that. Or not even deserves it, but like you know that this is the case, so you should expect it and not complain and just be quiet about right. it and accept it. And I think that that really speaks to culture. Going back to culture, right? In our culture, especially in the U.S., there's this reverence. I think unearned reverence that we give to certain groups of people. And one of them is law enforcement. Like, oh my God, law enforcement, you know, you put your lives on the line for us. And I don't think everyone shares that perspective because there are a lot of people who feel like law enforcement is part of the problem, not part of the solution. They, They don't keep, you know, society safe. And another group of people who I think we give undue reverence to is the military. And and both of those, it's like, oh, thank you for your service. And both of those groups, and then, you know, we want to add, if you want to add like, you know, male athletes in in male-dominated sports like football and basketball and baseball, like just because you're good on the field as an athlete or as a soldier or as a police officer, they get all this sort of all this slack slack that they shouldn't get and mm-hmm. and it's because of our militaristic society where we revere soldiers and warriors and we think oh people who use force and violence that's quote unquote sexy or it's desirable or charming or represents strength and virility all patriarchal ideas of masculinity and we value that over what might appear to be fe- quote unquote feminine traits like caring and kindness and respect and nurturing that we associate more with women. And so men who engage and exhibit those behaviors are perceived as feminine and ridiculed and ostracized potentially in our society, when in fact, we need more of that. So I I think part of the reason that we have this assumption and normalization of violence of police officers in their homes and therefore using it in society is because we as a society have cultivated that and we have to take responsibility for it. Absolutely. And another thing I would add to that is a lot of people think that, well, if a person is good at one thing, then they must be good at other things, right? They must be virtuous in other ways. Not too long ago, uh, there was a case where there was this person who was mentally disturbed and they called the police on him and he he attacked them with a knife. And the way it works right now is he got shot, right? He got shot and he was killed right there for attacking the police with a knife. Now, I feel that could have been different if maybe, I'm not saying that it would have definitely been different, but if the situation was handled differently, where an expert in mental health would have been able to maybe de-escalate the situation. Because I feel a lot of times uh, police officers aren't trained to de-escalate situations. Instead, they're asked to be afraid of their lives. And it's, it's, it's either your life or somebody else's. And since you have a gun, you have the right to use it. You have to defend yourself. I do like the idea of us being able to to take some of the jobs that the police officers are doing right now and and give them to people who uh, will be better able and more capable and better trained to handle them. So I, I think that's that's one thing that that people fail to see. Granted, at the same time, there's the 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 idea of it being called even defund the police. I believe one of your guests stated that yep, a, a better Hill. way. Oh, it was Jess Hill? That a better way to say defund the police would have been a justice reinvestment. So should be, I would say, not could be, because defund the police is, as even President Obama said, is an inaccurate reflection of the changes that are being proposed. You know, we're not saying we should get rid of the police. We're saying we should, number one, demilitarize the police. We should have accountability for their actions to the community. 
We should take some of the money that is being used to prop up and militarize the current police forces, you know, including with equipment and whatnot, and reinvest it into other parts of the community, such as, like you were saying, social workers who are responding to mental health crises, you know, rather than the police arresting mental health people, or social workers potentially addressing homelessness, because right now the police are responding to everything. Now, for crimes such as domestic abuse, yes, police should respond to it. But Jess Hill has also said in her book that if you look at the different models that have been successful across the world, one of them is women's police forces that have right. been tested and are tried and true in the global south, where you have female police officers responding to domestic abuse calls and their goal is not to arrest the perpetrator. Their goal is to help the victim. And they maintain an ongoing relationship with the victim so that there's a lifeline for the victim. There's this perception that if and when they're ready, the victim can reach out for help. But at the same time, their checking in on the victim shows the perpetrator that if the perpetrator does choose to continue to abuse, that there is a mechanism, someone's watching them, and there will be enforcement and consequences. And so that is a model that we spoke about in that episode and in other episodes with communities of color as well, that episode where why not have female officers? And it doesn't mean necessarily that female officers are going to be better than male officers. It depends on mm -hmm. the assessment mechanism, how you filter and recruit people and the criteria you use to determining whether they should be a police officer to begin with. So that needs to change up front right away for any gender who, who comes into policing. Absolutely. And the, another thing that she mentioned was that uh, keeping an eye on the perpetrator, like you said, they want to make sure that the perpetrator is aware of the his behaviors and that and any further abuse would escalate the level of, uh, of attention that that's that particular case is, is going to get. So it's more of a preventative kind of situation because we can see that when that's done, there's less uh, cases where people go all the way and, and kill their victims. Right. I, yeah. So there's, I think, you know, there's just so much that we can learn from other places around the world, you know, like Australia, mm -hmm. like Britain, that has course of control criminalized, that there are these tools that we can use. It doesn't mean necessarily that these are the only tools. We can use them in conjunction with justice reinvestment. That's right. And so this other topic that's come up throughout multiple community conversations, which you and I have talked about extensively as well, of course, is restorative justice. So we have right. shared in innumerable episodes um, a link to a paper by Joan Zorza, a longtime domestic violence advocate who has outlined all of the reasons why restorative justice as a practice is not appropriate in, ca in cases of domestic abuse. It's supposed to be used in one-time incident crimes, but it's not mm -hmm. appropriate for use in a situation where there's an ongoing pattern of power and control. And the very suggestion of it is I would compare it to uh, forced arbitration in an employment situation, you already right. have a power imbalance in an employer-employee dynamic. And then when you force the employee to sign a forced arbitration clause, you take away their power to hold the employer accountable for misdeeds by using other mechanisms such as the civil or criminal justice system. And forced arbitration sets them up with a lower level of power than they even started with. And similarly, restorative justice and domestic violence, it's its coercive to even ask a survivor to consider, you know, anything other than accountability from the very beginning. Until there's accountability, I believe, mm -hmm. there's no room for addressing forgiveness or reconciliation or Absolutely. rehabilitation. Rehabilitation cannot come until there's accountability because accountability is a mechanism for helping the perpetrator recognize and, and have consequences for uh, his or her actions. And if you don't have any accountability, there are no consequences for his or her actions and how can you have rehabilitation? You can only have performative rehabilitation. 
Right. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. All right. Uh, one of the other things when we talk about uh, sexism and racism in communities of color. So there was a guest there who had a woman who grew up with a mother who was very aggressive. And so we can see that a lot of times, and not just in communities of color, you have women who also uphold the same kind of system. So I thought that was interesting. So that was Roman you're talking, you're referring to how her mother right. was you know, it was like a gun toting and her grandmother too, strong women. She grew up with a lot of single women in her family. And that was her model for, for strength. Yeah, that was her model for strength. So um, it, it's something that she, she, she grew up with and, 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 and she, she, through her journey, she had to learn that that's the type of person that she was attracted to. And she had to learn to, I guess, find somebody that would hopefully be be nurturing to her as, as opposed to how her mother treated her. Well, I, I mean, I think also the other point to that um, anecdote is that w- when you see a woman being st- unstereotypically strong in quotes, right? By mm-hmm. being, being unafraid to express her opinion, unafraid to diminish herself, you know, figuratively in, in the world, she came with all these assumptions that that person is not a victim. And so being a strong woman makes you almost immune to being a victim. She didn't see her mother as a victim. And then she became and grew uh, and adopted many of those characteristics as she grew up. So it was hard for her to see the patterns of abuse in her own relationship because her having these external traits made her feel like she wasn't a victim because that's what she saw. But in fact, you can be, you know, someone who speaks out and has strong self-advocacy skills and still be a victim in a domestic abuse or coercive controlling relationship. Absolutely. And we've seen many cases of that through other episodes and other guests that you've brought in where that self-advocacy is actually a very good thing. But and we've still seen women become victims of these abusers. So uh, the system is unfair. That's why we have these conversations to, to bring awareness to that. Well, speaking of unfair, the next episode is on domestic abuse and child abuse. And as you know, I'm a protective mom myself. So I found that episode particularly helpful because I learned so much about the ways in which Roz and Emma from the first episode are both experts in understanding course of control in children. And I think that for me, the most important lesson of that episode and that conversation was that course of control can appear in different ways in children. And some children who are abused may resist it openly, and others may be trauma bonded and want to, let's say, identify or mirror the abuser's behaviors as a form of being close to power and as a form of survival and safety. And so there's a whole range of behaviors. And just because a child may not actively resist their abuse, it doesn't mean that they're not being abused and harm isn't being inflicted. Of course, a lot of these cases, the, the children are trying to survive on their own. So they use these as this as a survival mechanism. If, and and it, it just makes logical sense. If you are like, would you rather be abused and, and, and constantly braided? And, and, and if let's say, let's say you see your father, because also as a child, you see your parents as in a lot of cases, you see your parents as all knowing or, or more powerful and, and, and they could do no wrong. And if you're seeing this imbalance, power imbalance, you would rather be on the pa- on, on the on the side of of the abuser than of the abused. Like I think uh, one of your guests stated that uh, her son did not want to speak to her, but then when she was with him, she would not. That he, was the son Anita. Would not let go. It was Anita. Oh, I'm so sorry. So it was Anita who stated that her son would not want to speak to her over the phone and would say no, 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 no. But when they were together. Uh, her son would not leave her side. And then her daughter would point this out. But there's not much in, in this situation that the, a lot that the uh, victim could do. For example, Courtney gave that example of sometimes you have to bring the child back to their abuser 
and there is nothing else that they could do. So you are put in a position that is unimaginable to the average person or the person who's not dealing with, um, with this situation or who's not a protective mother. And I think that it's really hard when you're trying to help teach your child self-advocacy skills. And it's about how to manage being exposed to or having a relationship or living with their abuser. And having to have teach those skills, whether deliberately or secretively, is a way of admitting that you have no control over keeping them safe from their abuser, that they're required to still have contact. So in many ways, what you were talking about with Anita's son, some children, like her son, there's a sense of submission, you know, like surrender. Mm-hmm to the situation and what's the point of reconnecting or bonding with my mom if I know that my father's not gonna let me see her, that she's gonna be taken away from me. And and so I'd rather not bond. But then when she does when she did have contact with him in person, he let himself in the in that space feel safe enough to show his affection and receive her nurturing. But when he was away from her, he couldn't. And so that's all consistent. Some external person might see her son rejecting talking to her on the phone as him not wanting to be with her or as an external validation that she's a bad mother, for example, right? right? In quotes. Right. And therefore, he's exercising his will and agency. But we need to look at the full context of how trauma shows up in relationships and in children. And if you have an expert eye, you would see that that's consistent with a child who's been traumatized by domestic abuse. And it's not him exercising his will, but exercising a survival behavior. Right. What makes it worse, I think, is how the system is built there to reinforce this type of narrative of, of the woman who is trying to call, say, abuse, uh, call out abuse as a, um, and they're punished for it, right? I think that's one of the things that was mentioned was that even when you have healthcare professionals who provide actual evidence and testimony, it doesn't necessarily affect the court decision. So that's just another thing that's not just the abuser that's doing these things. It's not just the child, but all of this is being reinforced by the court itself. Yeah, so you're referring to the abuser disinformation tactic called PAS or parental alienation syndrome. And how basically there's been a cottage industry that's developed, it's cropped up over the past 40 plus years where out of the male supremacist movement, some people might call them the MRA, but they're essentially the gender equivalent of white supremacist. The male supremacists, they've cultivated within that group father supremacist. And father supremacist are people who want to maintain power and control over their partners, through, especially through the children. Um, and so they make accusations that the protective mom, who is actually trying to protect the child or children from abuse or domestic violence, witnessing domestic violence in their relationship, that they are engaging in behavior to alienate, quote unquote, alienate the child from the abuser father. uh, And in fact, that that behavior is a form of abuse in itself. So they're kind of weaponizing abuse and turning it on its head. And courts from, you know, judges to lawyers to mental health professionals have made lots and lots of money off of these disinformation tactics that discredit legitimate claims of abuse and have trafficked essentially children into the hands of abusers through legal means, through family court. And the episode that we had with Courtney, I think, was featured in an article that I wrote on PAS, where I give the cultural history of gender bias in family court. And it's not unknown to people in the court system that there is gender bias, that women are disbelieved, that when there's a negative outcome, the same behavior or the same allegation, women are treated more unfairly, have higher consequences than the man. And so a man who may be accused of sexually abusing a child may initially have supervised visitation, but then, you know, there's a a huge effort to restore the visitation to regular unsupervised visitation very quickly. Whereas a protective mom who has not been sexually abusing or abusing their child, if she's accused of that 
counter-accused of alienation by the abusive father, she could get supervised visitation, and that may last for a long time, well into years, and have no uh, end in sight because of the gender bias in family court. So that article that I wrote, you know, really highlights the systemic problems. And so we can't just, you know, it's, it's not a matter of just changing policy because the people in the system are themselves not only just financially benefiting, but they're also contributing their mindset and sexist views and mindset where they victim blame the woman and the mother, and they don't understand the dynamics of abuse. So that back to the teen mom example you gave earlier, if someone is engaging in reactive violence, that is reactive. If someone is engaging in violence as a form of resistance to being controlled, coercively controlled, kind of like if you were held hostage by a kidnapper and you're like trying to fight a, fight the kidnapper to escape, you're like not the perpetrator, right? It's a form of, of freeing yourself. Self-defense? I mean, is that the... Well, I mean, it's not really that- about self-defense because the perpetrator isn't engaging, initiating violence towards the victim, right? Like right. you might be... You might be um, lashing out, engaging in in reactive violence or in resistive violence because you're trying to set yourself free. You're trying to resist the coercive control. And that doesn't make you the perpetrator. Right, right. It's, it's something that's going to promote self-preservation. And there's, that's only logical for somebody to do if you're in that situation. But again, a lot of these things, they cause... They cause bigger issues for the woman. Like, uh, I believe Courtney was the one who said that, like, a lot of times their child was over-medicated or, or they weren't brought back on time. So a lot of these small issues, they can't, can't all, all, like, outwardly do something that you're going to potentially be in trouble for. I'm glad you actually brought that up because um, for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we had some listeners write in with examples of what coercive control looks like. And I, we posted these in our Instagram profile, but, you know, I just wanted to read some of them because they're, they're not necessarily things that people will think about, but they definitely fall into the category, of course, of control of children. For example, number one, refusing to agree to a place to return children after contact, making children self-police and withhold love and affection with their protective parent. Um, which is what my abuser did with me, telling my son when he was young, you know, not to kiss or hug me or or his babysitter or a dog. That was a you know a way of uh, him coercively controlling my son, uh, making children mm-hmm. feel guilty over their contact choices. So if the child expresses wanting to spend time with a protective parent or enjoying their time with a protective parent, there could be behaviors maybe not so explicit, like oh blah, 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 you know, that was wrong of you, but you could withhold attention or love and affection, and they'll know after they come back from a visit with their protective parent, okay, well, if I'm going to get the cold shoulder, that doesn't feel good, so I'm not going to come back and, and show that I, I had fun, you know, with my mom, for example. Right. Telling the protective parent that the abuser can do what they want when the children are with them, uh, making ch- behaving in an intimidating way, including subtle gestures and changes to tone in front of the children, behaving recklessly with children's safety, like not using car seats, bike helmets, behaving recklessly when it comes to the medical needs. So back to Courtney, you know, like yep. not caring about their medical needs, not giving attention to their medical needs, putting them right. at constant risk. That could be over-medication, knowingly exposing children to avoidable illnesses. You know, like in COVID, for example, we had some stories about that. Using COVID as a way to keep the child from the protective parent. So those are all a range of behaviors that fall into course of control of children. Right. It's really difficult to to imagine dealing with uh, these situations. Um, I'm hoping that we can bring awareness to this. So this kind of abuse is, is exposed uh, because it seems to be built in the system. And I feel like the more attention that is brought into this, the, the better we are as a society. I would recommend, um, you and I saw the, the documentary, What Doesn't Kill Me. I would recommend that 
all of our listeners download and um, stream that documentary online. It's a very comprehensive explanation of what happens in family court, how it is gender biased against protective moms. There are experts who speak about domestic abuse, who speak about child abuse, who speak about trauma and ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And all of these people help connect the dots between what is happening in family court and what we should be doing differently. So I highly, highly recommend that everybody see that documentary. Yeah, it's a very good watch. So let's talk about the final episode, which is domestic abuse in the church. You grew up Catholic, and now I guess you, would you identify as an atheist, or, or are you still affiliated with uh, religion? I would say, I, I so definitely, uh, I, I, look, if we say that atheist is a person who does not believe in God, I don't know if there's a God or not, so I would, I would more identify as agnostic, but I don't follow a particular religion. Um, I know in the episode you mentioned that you were, you considered yourself spiritual. I wouldn't identify with that either. So, um, so for me, yes, like you said, I grew up Catholic, but even though I was Catholic, I was always questioning everything. So I I went to a religious school for, for a point, uh, especially over the summers. It was, it was like this Catholic retreat that I remember I was maybe 11 or 12 years old where I asked a lot of questions. And even during my first communion, I, I was always asking questions as a child. And I feel like it's it like bringing it to this episode that it, a lot of it deals with community. Like religion brings people together. And I think that's a positive thing. If, if people are getting together to help each other out in positive ways, I think at the same time, it does bring a lot of questionable things like uh, a lot of abuse that happens because of some people do take advantage of the trust that's built in in these relationships especially when it comes to leaders in the in the religion but honestly i did not i can't say that i experienced that all too much well i mean you know the the way that religion is set up organized religion i should say they're all patriarchal and there's this hierarchy you know where there's certain people um have been deemed more closer to god uh, whoever that God is, and have greater access to um, to knowledge. And so when you have that system, it's ripe for abuse because everybody else who's not part of the elite, they have to just kind of accept and submit. Like you said, if you're the one questioning, you're probably going to be Um, very quickly ousted from that community because the community thrives and survives on conformity and acceptance. Right. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. And I think that's probably why I I wasn't very, I wasn't integrated into that, that, that sort of, um, that sort of thinking. So like, it's interesting because I don't think my parents were that religious either. My mom probably a little bit more, but I would say she was more into the traditions. So when there are events like uh, like some a uh, death in the family, they do we 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 would go to church and even now I would probably do that because it's still part of my culture. So a lot of these things like where we grow up with these things and that's all we know and I think when it comes to abuse like a lot of victims are brought up in an abusive household and they don't necessarily know what's right or wrong that was brought up with uh, in all of these community conversations. So that's a good point that you're making, which is that abuse and power differentials are normalized in culture. And so people very often use culture as an excuse to not challenge abuse. They'll say, oh, well, in that culture, you know, child brides or uh, female genital mutilation, or honor killings, like that's part of their culture, therefore it's okay. And I think, you know, culture is itself also something that's socially constructed. Right. And why should we not challenge how culture has come about? Because ultimately, you know, there's a higher force that goes even above culture, which is human rights. <laughs> and there, right. there is a concept of universal human rights where being subjugated, being dominated is, um, is not okay. And, mm-hmm. and if culture is being used as an excuse to inflict harm on other people in specific ways, that should be challenged too. 
Absolutely. And like you said, so me growing up, I was always, I, I, when I say questioned, I guess people may have perceived that as challenge, right? Like that they, they challenged a lot of the social norms. So, so it's something that I, is different from the guests that you spoke with, right? Because they seem to all use words like sin. They're still very much involved in the church. And so it's great that they're pushing back along uh, against a, a lot of these uh, narratives that are sort of built in by religion. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that's a great point, Michael. That you can be religious and spiritual and be an advocate for equality and a feminist and a domestic violence advocate. It's not mutually exclusive. Just because you're advocating for equality and ending violence and oppression doesn't mean you can't be still part of a religious community. But you have mm-hmm. to find the right community, and if the community doesn't uphold those values, then that's not a community that's living in truth. And one of the surprising things I would say uh, in this conversation was that in order for them to uh, bring this up to many churches, I think one of the things that she said was she this is, herself This is Julie, I, I think. Oh, Julie. No, 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 Julie no, 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 sorry. This is uh, Deborah, right? I, I think you were talking about Deborah, but go ahead. So one of the things that Deborah mentioned was that she herself couldn't bring up the issues to some of the leaders, she would have to ask a, a man to sort of help her speak on her behalf because in a lot of cultures, they they would probably be more likely to listen to a male voice than that of a female because not just because of sexism, but I would say probably because of, of they would be told, oh, well, you don't understand my religion. Yeah, I mean, well, Deborah's Jewish and so she works with all faith communities. And yes, so you're you're referring to her saying that in order to have access, not just physical, literal access, but emotional, psychological access to right. certain churches or uh, church leaders that those typically white men would give her more credence if she came with another white male. And right. she's letting him do some of the speaking, for example, or letting him be the entree so that it seems more balanced. Because if she just went in as a woman, they'll see her as maybe like a quote unquote feminist activist or something <laughs> there right. to challenge them and they're going to resist, which, you know, that in and of itself speaks volumes, right? Absolutely. It, like a feminist to seem like some some crazy radical person that's going to uh, like take away their power or or do something awful to them. Like that's not just in church. I think it's very prevalent in regular conversations in society and people that I just hear overall. It's just an awful misconception. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Are there any final thoughts that you want to share about 2020 or these conversations or the survivor episodes that we didn't get a chance to really delve more deeply into? Overall, I do appreciate it. It seemed uh, like you got a lot of great uh, quality speakers. The survivor stories were very compelling. Um, I think that for listeners who find this information helpful, that if you could share this with other loved ones, we'd appreciate it because I feel like the better we are informed, the better we can help society in general. So thank you so much. It's been a crazy year, but I'm hoping that next year will be better because we've learned a lot from this year. Thank you, Michael. And you know, our conversations have always been a source of motivation and inspiration for me because I feel that growth is possible as I see you in your own evolution and that awareness does bring about transformation. And I appreciate that you go out into the world and teach these issues and you have conversations with your friends and family to help inspire them to learn more. And so that's as much as we can do, right? We have to start with bringing awareness and educating so that informed people can make informed decisions. And like you said, I'm a prime example of this. No matter how much I thought I knew at one point, the more I I learned from these podcasts, I apply it to my life. Like you said, I do share this information with others, and I uh, hope everyone listening can do the same, and uh, you should find growth within yourself as well. 
the next time you and I speak and have a reflections episode, it'll be 2021. So, uh, right. and, and, and that's probably going to be after the inauguration. So let's, let's close our conversation and, um, this year with some positive aspirations for how we would like 2021 to manifest. So I hope that 2021 will bring uh, things like Black Lives Matter and, and a lot of these positive movements uh, to the forefront. I think a lot of people have seen what's not working and what hasn't worked. So hopefully I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. And for me, I hope that everybody can take action, not just by starting with listening to this podcast and sharing, but also going out and searching for books that are outside your comfort zone, searching for TV shows and movies uh, to learn about stories that are different from yours and really expand your perspective on what the human condition is about, even if it's not something you've experienced, because it's with that expansion and openness that you would be positioned to be challenged. And it's only when you're challenged that you can grow and learn. And and through that growth and learning, there's deeper connections that we can have with one another. So I look forward to bringing you a whole series of new episodes in 2021. And I wish everyone a safe, healthy, and uh, joyful 2021 and new year. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.